I'm Becky Rupert McMahon, Chief Executive at the Cleveland Metropolitan Bar Association. Welcome to another edition of the Cleveland Metropolitan Bar Association's My Bar Story. Throughout 2023, the CMBA will be hosting a series of podcasts that have created a living legacy in honor of our 150th anniversary. We'll be bringing you stories from the women and men within our bar membership who have truly made bar history. Now let's get started with another bar story. My name is Siobhan Nash. I'm with the Cleveland Metropolitan Bar Association, and here I am the Community and Pro Bono Program Specialist. Today we have a special guest with us here. We have Mr. Harold Herc Rousey. Um, Herc is the law department manager at the Cuyahoga County Domestic Relations Court. He's been a CNBA member since 1989 and a member of the 2022 Leadership Academy class. As a lifelong history buff, he is a docent at the Cleveland Gray's Armory Museum and author of Coal Mines on the Prairie, Life of an American Community. Let's welcome Herc to the podcast. Herc, thanks for being here today. So let's start at this month's Bar Journal, the March Bar Journal. You are the author of an article. I got a chance to read it, and it's really good. Um, Tell us a little bit about it. Well, I picked the period of the Second World War to come. Thank you for having me, by the way. Uh, I picked the Second World War period because it's always been one of my interests. And I looked at the response of the Cleveland Bar uh, to the war and the effect that this great upheaval had on on the practice of law in Cleveland uh, and uh, tried to tie it in a little bit in, in my opening there. Uh, people have been complaining in the bar. We've gone through three years now of the of the pandemic and the way the law practice has been disrupted. And, and my title is slightly smart, Alec, but it is, in fact, uh, we think we've been disrupted. Uh, these folks of, of 90 years ago now, 80-some years ago, uh, had a terrible disruption of their life and practice uh, because of the Second World War. Yeah. So I noticed in the while reading the article, you talked about the opening some. Um, and so what stood out to me was uh, the comparison throughout the article with the two greats. Um, so I know you started with it and then you ended with it and thinking about the Great Resignation and the Great Depression and the war. Can you tell us a little more about what specifically called your attention to that particular time period? Well, that. It's part of my, I guess, history interest. But I guess it's a generational thing with me being a boomer that when I was a kid, almost every adult male I knew was a World War II veteran. My dad, one of his brothers, other cousins and uncles of the family, most of my neighbors, uh, nearly all of my classmates' dads were World War II veterans. Uh, the, the VFW in my hometown was the main place my parents socialized, spent a lot of time there. And I've just always been fascinated by World War II. And when we were looking at when the Bar Association was calling for volunteers and they flagged what periods they would be looking at to write articles about, uh, I jumped at this. And so during your research, I know you had to do a lot of research for this particular article. What stood out to you the most? What was most interesting to you? Well, one of the things that, that I picked up on here, and it had seen a little bit elsewhere, a lot of lawyers went into the service 
but very, very few lawyers went into the Judge Advocate General Corps. Uh, in fact, during World War II, what appears to, well, what did happen is lawyers overwhelmingly were sent to officers' training and became officers. But beyond that, they were in every job that there was. In the Army, they were infantry officers, they were tank commanders. Uh, in, in the Air Force, they were pilots and navigators, and they had different administrative jobs. Navy and Coast Guard, they served on everything from PT boats to battleships and in every department. So uh, they were they were spread out, uh, dispersed throughout uh, the military in, in uh, a wide variety of jobs. Uh, one thing that, that struck me, it seems to me that maybe a disproportionate number of lawyers wound up as intelligence officers. That's something that keeps recurring. And although I've not had a chance to track this down, I have read somewhere, a bit of trivia tucked in the back of my head from, from the <laughs> past, that uh, the problem-solving approach that we learn in law school, what the professors call good lawyer-like analysis, is similar to the analytical approach that's taught in naval and military intelligence. So maybe there's a reason mm. that it seems like there are a lot of lawyers in intelligence during the war. But at this point, that's just a, a semi-educated guess. Sounds like the title of a good article for a future Bar Journal story. It might. It might. <laughs> that's cool. It sounds pretty interesting. In the course of the war, uh, there was mention that some 150-some local lawyers had taken an afternoon shift job at a factory, at different factories around town. Uh, and I, I suspect as I read that, uh, I, I know some of it was driven by wanting to participate in the effort. Mm -hmm. But you also, I also suspect, because all of the things I read says that the amount of work available for lawyers just dropped off the table during the war. So I kind of suspect that maybe there were guys who were making more money on second trick at the factory than... than uh, sitting in the office during the day. Yeah. I have trouble wrapping my head around how completely the experience of World War II affected you know, everybody, uh, not just the ones who, who went into the service, uh, but those who were uh, uh, too old, too young. Uh, it was still uh, sort of an all-encompassing, uh, it, it was something that was with everybody every day. Uh, which is, as I said, I just difficult to really comprehend how how that must have affected everybody uh, at all times. Yeah, I think what we have is the luxury of history and time. And I think that it'll be interesting once more time passes to see how we can really compare that time to what we've seen in the last three years. I think it'll be a really interesting comparison because we know that it is now is impacting people. We just really don't know how. We haven't had enough time really to understand. So I really appreciate your article. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Um, you talked a little about in the article about veterans' mental health and the different initiatives from the government to try to increase, I guess, the law school enrollment and school enrollments in general. Um, let's talk a little bit about maybe some parallels that you might see now in comparison to then. Well, certainly, uh, it's, it's under, I guess, everything old is new again. That, Very true. That, that um, you know, we have the veterans court docket, the veterans docket. In oh, the, the treatment the court, court here, yeah. The treatment court. We have mental health issues in, in service members of our latest war in, in the Middle East. 
There are still Vietnam veterans who have mental problems. It keeps recurring. Uh, it's a discussion I've had with friends and family who look back at, at, I am sure many of those folks I talked about, my dad's generation, mm-hmm. had what we now know as PTSD and other problems and, and just didn't get them treated because they weren't given the proper attention. But at least there was some, we see, in, as I mentioned in the article, the local bar associations did create committees to try to see about getting some mental health assistance for the veterans. Uh, I think the what they did with that in World War II was not very much, mm-hmm. at least Today, I think there's more emphasis on that. Uh, it's still a recurring problem. I don't remember now the, the number, but I know uh, you read, you go to conferences. Uh, the, the suicide rate among veterans is still un, un, unbearably high. Um, so uh, it's a problem that still hasn't been tackled. It's a problem that maybe we're doing a better job with, or a little more aware of, uh, but I, I don't know that we made a lot of progress on that one. The other one that you mentioned, the GI Bill, uh, that was a big deal. Uh, The two law schools here in town were down to a trickle. There were were 48 students for all three years of Western Reserve University Law School at one point during the war. Wow. Uh, And the GI Bill brought both law schools roaring back. And that was true. Uh, There was a great leap forward. You know, I've read somewhere that before World War II, um, only about one adult in 20 went to college at all. And after the GI Bill, uh, it went way up. uh, And there was an expectation then that the kids, my generation, Mm -hmm. would go. And that has carried on. Uh, So uh, the GI Bill was one of the great benefits to come out of the war. And although I didn't look at it in the article, there were other aspects of that. Uh, I know my parents financed our home through the VA loan program, which gets us back though, to some of the inclusion and equity problems because Mm -hmm. uh, the GI Bill itself was race neutral. Lenders. African-American veterans were were eligible, but you had to find, A, a school that would admit you Mm -hmm. or be a a lender that would would finance your house or a realtor that would show you a house. Uh, The Stokes brothers were both veterans who took advantage of it. I know there was some other African-American participation, too. Uh, as it was, the others, besides them, Judge Manos and a few others, mm-hmm. uh, were still around when I started practicing. I at least know of these people, that, that these veterans who took advantage of the GI Bill in the days after the war uh, to go to law school, to finish their education, uh, were, you know, were still around when I started practicing, at least some of them I encountered and some of them I at least recognize the name. I really encourage everyone to take a look at that article when it does come out. It's really informative and there's like a fast fact section that's there. I really enjoyed that part. So um, I'm excited to see it in print. I want to talk about you. So tell us a little bit about where you went to college, where you went to law school and how you kind of found your path and navigated your space. Well, I got to the practice of law by a very circular route. Okay. When I graduated from high school, I went to community college and became a respiratory therapist. I practiced respiratory therapy for 15 years, including 
The first two years that I was at Case Western Reserve Law School, I was working part-time on the 11 to 7.30 shift at the now-closed Mount Sinai Hospital. Mm. In my days in respiratory therapy, I worked primarily in critical care, and I became aware of, I experienced many of the medical, legal, uh, ethical problems that were arising. I actually uh, predate the, the uh, advanced directives, so I remember when we were making termination of life support decisions with patients who weren't able to to consent or not consent because mm-hmm. we didn't have anything like uh, an advanced directive yet. Yeah. Uh, I remember cases in which families refused blood transfusions or other treatment for children. Um, kind of going back to that end of life, I was I was practicing in Kansas when the state of Kansas was the first state to adopt the brain death criteria as the alternative uh, definition of death. Uh, I was practicing in the early days of the AIDS epidemic, which led to a lot of ethical and legal problems. Mm-hmm. I kept getting increasingly more interested in it when, I guess, a bad case of burnout and some other factors led me to consider a career change. I opted for the law. Uh, I picked Case Western Reserve specifically because they had the Law Medicine Center. Okay. I kind of sort of thought I'd end up as in-house counsel at a hospital, but Things took me another direction. When I graduated, I was 35 at graduation and 36 by the time the bar exams came out. And I got the distinct impression with many firms, and especially the big ones, that they really weren't interested in a 36-year-old rookie. Grades, did well in moot court, wrote for a a journal. Uh, None of that seemed to matter. And the folks at the placement office said I wasn't the only one getting that impression. Mm. But be that as it may, I did find a job with Armstrong DeSantis, which was a small insurance defense firm. Two and a half months later, they merged with what was then Buckley King and Bluso, now Buckley King. So I started doing uh, insurance defense work, which covers a lot of ground. I was I did automobile accidents. I did premises liability and products liability. And as the Buckley King firm grew and and changed its practice a little, uh, I was doing some contract litigation. I did some bankruptcy, uh, some employment law, and some domestic relations law. I learned a lot of nuts and bolts litigation uh, from the late Bill Armstrong. And then I refined my writing with some guidance from Brent Buckley and from now-retired Judge Rosemary Gold. When Judge Gold took the domestic relations bench, she asked me to come be her bailiff and staff attorney, and I worked with her in that capacity for six and a half years. Then there was a reorganization at the court, and I went to the law department. And after a while, uh, four and a half years ago, I became the department manager, And under the heading of old dogs learning new tricks, I became department (laughs) manager on my 65th birthday. So uh, off sort of on another career. That's a nice happy birthday. Yes. (laughs) Um, I I enjoy the work. Uh, I like the people I work with. The work is interesting and, and challenging and something that lawyers who don't do domestic relations tend to think that it's formulaic and and cookbook. Mm. 
And they don't realize we get some very complicated jurisdictional issues. Of late, we're seeing some international service issues that one parent is here in America and one parent is in another country. Uh Uh, We even get into some complicated business law because uh, we run into some uh, litigants who have very complex business interests that have to be straightened out as part of the divorce. So uh, I enjoy the work. I like the people I'm with. I think that in the law department, we have a damn good five-lawyer shop that gives some very solid backup to the judges and magistrates. Uh, I'm very proud of the the staff attorneys I work with. I think they do a a great job. Uh, All of them are much younger than me, so perhaps uh, I hope part of my legacy will be that my mentoring efforts with them will have had some long-term effect with them. So... In a nutshell, that's how my uh, career has gone in the last 30 years. That's fascinating. I get to speak with a lot of our volunteers. And so often I ask them, like, how do you end up in a legal profession um, or as a lawyer? And so I've met many second career attorneys in that space. I've met engineers who transitioned, now a respiratory therapist. So I just find it fascinating. And then how you marry the two um, together to learn something new that you love, right? So what led you to CMBA? Like, how did you get connected with CBA or CMBA? Well, I joined what was in the Cleveland Bar Association right after I graduated. In the late 90s, I got involved with what was then the Law-Related Education Committee, uh, which no longer exists. It got blended into the Justice for All movement. But uh, back at the time... We actually put on the uh, People's Law School. I was part of planning and presenting that a couple of times with getting uh, non-lawyers, getting the general public to come in, and we'd have somebody talk about what are your rights if the police stop you? How would a criminal trial proceed? Uh, We did different kinds of tort law. I specifically remember I presented one program on the Americans with Disabilities Act for uh, the, the public. Uh, was in two or three of those sessions. For more than 20 years now, I've been judging the Ohio High School Mock Trial Competition in the district and the regional competitions. This past year, I was on the committee that wrote the statewide program. I think I may do that again. It, it was kind of interesting. I did have the experience this year that after one round, a woman came up and said that she remembered me judging when she competed as a freshman in high school, and she's now a third-year student at Case Western. So she's one who went to the program (laughs) and did decide to go into the practice of law. That's Uh, awesome. I also, as as you noted earlier, I was in the 2021-22 Leadership Academy. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that's a really good program. I wish it had been around earlier in my career. Uh, I think I learned some things that that if I had known earlier, I'd have had (laughs) more chance to uh, put them into use. One of our staff attorneys is in the program this year, and I've encouraged all the others to look at it for future years. I I think it's something that, that people could grow their career with. And probably the most recent is that I'm on the uh, curriculum subcommittee for the Cleveland Legal Collaborative. Uh, That is a program that I think has great potential to be helping an underserved portion of the community and also to jumpstart the careers of some of these new lawyers. 
Law school doesn't really teach you how to, you know, there's, there's more than there used to be as far as, as trial practice classes. And I see the CLC as a being able to teach these new lawyers right. some nuts and bolts of everyday uh, legal practice. And, and I think there are some areas that, that definitely need uh, service. The Service Members Civil Relief Act oh, yeah. that, that the courts are supposed to appoint uh, attorneys. Uh, for those who don't know, the Civil Relief Act prevents a court from entering a default judgment against the service member who's deployed or on active duty. Uh, we're supposed to appoint lawyers to represent them to prevent the default, but there's no mechanism for that. And it struck me that perhaps the fellows in the CLC, mm. uh, it, it's a fairly short and, and not not too onerous assignment to represent these people, and then we'd at least have a pool of people who could step up on those kind of scattered occasions when we have a lawsuit involving somebody on active duty. Yeah, we're really excited about the collaborative and excited to have you on that curriculum committee. You talked about the People's Law School a little bit when you were discussing your work with the CBA. Can you tell us a little bit more about what the People's Law School was, um, like how that program worked? Yes, it was It was an educational program for non-lawyers, for the general public. Uh, and when we would have a session, it, uh, if I remember right, it was usually like a, a half day on a Saturday and we might have somebody do an hour. As I said, I did a program on one of them. I did an hour on the, the Americans with Disabilities Act, and somebody else did an hour on criminal law, uh, and another one might do an hour on landlord-tenant law. Just open to the general public. This is how the law works. This is how the court works. Basically make them, I guess, an educated consumer or give them a little better judgment of when they darn well should call a lawyer. Yeah. I think we did two or three in the time that I was on the, the committee. It had been going on a while before I joined it. I guess where I am most familiar with you is the Ohio mock trial. Um, we get to work together in that capacity. So um, Herc is an amazing uh, volunteer and served as a presiding judge this year. I wanted to ask you a little bit about your experience. You judged both the district and the regional competition. So tell us a little about your experience. We haven't um, been in person in a couple years. Yeah, it was nice to be back live. I had judged over the pandemic and, and the remote. Uh, it was okay, but it was better to be live. It's good to see uh, these these high schoolers in person. And I'm always impressed with the quality of what they do. We had nothing like this when I was in high school, although I was in the debate club. And I know darn well I wasn't as polished as these people are <laughs> uh, when they uh, present to us. Uh, they do a fine job. I think some of the the students who play the witness roles uh, really get into it. Uh, I, I have said before, every once in a while, I, I, I will say we get an expert witness who is almost as obnoxious as a real expert witness. Um, <laughs> That's valid. <laughs> and, and the students who portray the lawyers do a good job. One of my former colleagues at the uh, domestic relations court, who was a magistrate, used to say, Darn kids get up and make an actual proper objection, and I have no idea what to do with that. I just don't see that in real practice. And and I am always impressed by how polished they are, how well-prepared they are, and it's fun to see how enthused they are. I, I didn't go this year, but in past years, I've gone to the ceremony afterwards when the, when the results were announced, and it is just fun to see this gang of kids screaming and whooping and hollering when they find out that they're advancing. Yes. 
It's very interesting. When we did the regional ceremony this year, some of the courtroom officials were downstairs and some people kind of came out of their office like, hey, who won? They heard like the noise and the cheering and they were just kind of excited to see who won because the kids were so excited. So thanks for that. Um, I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. Again, this is Mr. Harold Herc Rousey. And um, we thank him for spending a little time with us today telling his bar story. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for today's My Bar Story. To hear other bar stories or to check out any of the CMBA's other podcasts, please go to Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. You can also go to our website at clemetrobar.org forward slash podcast. We hope you listen again soon.